Right, enough from me. Everyone, this is Roger Ellis. Say hello to Roger. <laughs> We're very grateful to have Roger. Roger also just sat in um, with us and our leaders uh, in our little meeting just now. And we're really grateful to have his oversight. He's our real key talking point. Uh, uh, talking point? That'll do. We talk. <laughs> communication is our main line of communication with 24-7 Prayer. Roger is the director of the community's network internationally, 24-7 Prayer. He's just got back from... Uh, our friends in Glasnost in Macedonia, um, visiting them, and now he's here with us. So we're really grateful to have Roger. Shaul and Roger speak very regularly to talk about the church. He has a lot of input into who we are as a community, and of course, he just directed our whole year of learning. So um, yeah, this is Roger. We're really grateful to have you, Roger. I'm going to pray for you, and then you can go ahead. God, we commit ourselves to study once more in 2024. Lord, we start this year by saying we don't know it all. We do not know it all. But God, thank you that together, in discussion, in having our visitors, we can have a much better idea. And Lord, we long to know you more. To know you more. You are endless. We could explore you every day for the rest of our lives. And we still would never have the full picture. And God, we choose not to be daunted by that or put off by that. But God, we step into the wonder of that. And Lord, I pray for us this year that theology would lead us to worship. That as we see new facets of your character, as we understand more of your design for us, for this world, for your church, Lord, that it would lead us to a place of worship and wonder and awe of who you are, of how we're made, of how we join together in relationship. Come, Lord Jesus, position our hearts, position our minds, open our ears today. And God, for Roger, I just pray, thank you for him. Thank you for all the preparation he's done. Would you bless that, Lord? Thank you for all the input he has in that community. And God, would you bless him and strengthen him this afternoon? Amen. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I want to encourage you as a church for uh, hanging on to the key theological words. Um, you know, I think paraphrased versions of the Bible have their place. Um, I can't think where. But no, no, they do, they do have their place. They do give us some terms like unforced rhythms of grace. They kind of contextualize a little bit. But if you, if you lose words like redemption or like ecclesiology, like eschatology, you know, I think it'd be quite lazy. We want to contextualize, we want to make it easy. You lose those words, but they're almost like a, a code breaker. You know, once you understand the word redemption, you've only got to mention that one word and the whole breadth of God's plan fires into your brain because it's a key word it's so rich with meaning you it's you can't paraphrase it in that sense so I want to encourage you as a community for wrestling with some of the big words eschatology ecclesiology all of those kind of things uh, because I think it's an important part of growing and really understanding God's purposes so we're going to do a bit of ecclesiology and eventually we will get to the household codes which uh uh, Charles gave me as my subject. 
And so I thought we would look at men and women together in God's purposes. So first of all, what we're going to do is, now the household codes we'll find out a little bit later. Those are those two passages. Um, and there are other household codes, but the, the main passages that, that, that people are thinking about uh, when they talk about the household uh, codes are, the, are those passages in Ephesians uh, you know, and, and Colossians. I'll read the Ephesians one, why not? Um, and it's this understanding of some of the cultural context um, that, that we find ourselves in the Bible stuck together. There we go. So the, 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 it's, it's passages like this. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and another and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Genesis again. Uh, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So, so there are these... Um, these passages which talk about the family, uh, they talk about uh, parents and children, children and parents. How do we understand them uh, in, in that context? What is, uh, are these one-off teachings for all time or, or are they contextual? And if, and, and, and if they're, uh, they're one-off teachings, how do we apply them in our culture? If they're contextual, how do we apply them in our culture? So I'm going to answer that question for us, but not yet. Uh, so, so let's look at a little bit of a, a biblical framework. Um, if you want a bit more of a detailed read, um, we, we've got, I'd recommend Paul's Women or 1 Corinthians by Lucy Pepiat. They're, they're quite simple and small reads worth getting. The 1 Corinthians one's a bit more complex. I think she's also just done a thing with the Bible project on 1 Corinthians, and I'm sure uh, that, that, um, that, that she'll cover some of the some of the one Corinthians eleven on that we've got discovering biblical equality. Um, that's a bit of a bigger beast. Uh, you might be able to get that um, you know virtually a bit cheaper. Um, women in the world of the earliest Christians. If you really want to have a little bit of a cultural look from a quality New Testament scholar, Lynn Kohick is most certainly that. And that is a really interesting book. If you're a little bit more interested in, you know, feminism, women's issues, whatever, I definitely would recommend um, Lynn Kohick or uh, Carol Mayer, who I'll quote a little bit later. Absolutely fantastic. And lastly, Flame of Love, Sexuality in the Old Testament. That is an absolute brute. It's a monster of a book. Um, so <laughs> I wouldn't recommend getting that unless you really are a glutton for punishment. Um, but there are some fantastic chapters in that. So again, you may uh, be able to get that, you know, virtually or, or something. But there's some, uh, some really excellent chapters in there. So that's what I'm being drawing from. So I'm going to give us a bit of a biblical overview first. And so we're going to start with the, the Old Testament. And I think it's worth uh, saying that both Jesus and Paul 
um, viewed Genesis as authoritative and foundational. So you see that, you know, Jesus in Matthew 19, um, it, talking about divorce, you know, it was not so at the beginning. And we'll look a little bit more about that. Uh, all the way through Paul's theology, he's talking about Adam. So Paul is the sort of uh, author of this, you know, Adamic Christology. You know, Christ is the second Adam. In Adam all die. And 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ all are made alive. And, and so both Paul and Adam and others, other New Testament writers, Luke, they look back to Genesis as a kind of a foundation. Uh, to, to their thinking, to their theology, and they make all sorts of points out of Genesis. So Genesis is always a key place to start. And I think when we look towards Genesis, we've got to realize that the book, um, although it's positioned first in the Bible because it's telling the story of beginnings, it's it's putting the beginnings of God's purposes, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden to the city. Um, Genesis wasn't actually written first. There's no doubt about that. Um, Job was the earliest book, most likely. Um, lots of sort of um, non-Hebrew thinking kind of within that, clearly as a document, very, very early. Um, and most scholars would, would date Genesis around about the center um, so probably in the Babylonian Mesopotamian exile, that's when that book was written. And so most scholars would say, well, Genesis is not, it's not the how, it's the why. So when we're looking at the book of Genesis, you know, we are not looking at, you know, a scientific analysis as to the emergence of the creation. You know, to the writer of Genesis would have been absolutely blindsided, stunned, uh, you know, that people are using it to say, well, it's literally seven days and all this kind of thing. Now, that's not to say that the Bible, that the earth wasn't created in literal seven days. It's, uh, but it, you, if you have that theory, it is a scientific theory. It's a geological theory. It's not a biblical theory because the text doesn't require that. The, the writer of Genesis is not interested in the how, is interested in the why. He's setting in the, the Babylonian Mesopotamian context and, and, and the creation story is set against the Babylonian and Mesopotamian stories of creation that are very, very different. And so the writer there is wanting to say, who is God? Who is this God who created everything out of nothing? You know, who is this God that created humanity in his image? Not like the Mesopotamian gods, which were created out of violence and the cutting up of other gods and out of their entrails, you know, the, the, the God that created violence and violently. This is the God who created Adam out of the dust of the earth. And, and so, it, so the, the, really the writer of Genesis is saying, well, who is God? Who, is, who are humanity in relation to God? Who are relate, uh, humanity into relationship with one another, male and female? And who are humanity in relation to the creation? These are the big picture anthropological stories that the writer of Genesis uh, is addressing, which is why they're really, really important in terms of understanding who we are as human beings, who God is, or all of that kind of scenario. And so right at the beginning, you have almost one of the defining statements with regard to human identity, that has completely transformed the whole of culture. Um, you know, we take this for granted as, as Westerners, uh, but in, in, you know, in the Roman context, pre-Jesus, pre pre-Paul and all this, it, it wouldn't have been that kind of framework. There wouldn't be this ideal 
that all human beings are created in the image of God. And so Genesis chapter 1, um, 26 to 28, we have this whole context, and this is very important because you note that when... Um, when I read the passage on the household goes again, Paul again is refers in, in, in Ephesians 5 early on. Paul again went back to Genesis. He's going there all the time. So we've got to understand what, what, what Genesis says if, we, if we're understanding where Paul is coming from. So then God said, let us make humanity better translation in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so you have this uh, dimension that both male and female are in the image of God. And, and this, this context is, is rather, most theologians would say that, that Genesis, it, it kind of brings this kind of kingdom language, this, the, the idea that humanity are created in the image of God to rule. And, and this would have paralleled the Mesopotamian view where basically the gods uh, put the idol in the temple and, 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 and the, the presence of the god was mediated through the single idol in the temple. And the pharaoh was the demigod, if you like, that mediated that authoritarian rule. And so immediately the writer of Genesis is this is pretty political because he's undermining the whole of Mesopotamian and Babylonian politics. But he's saying, well, this God creates humanity as the image idol. So human beings are the image idol of God. That's why idolatry is such a sin, because we are stepping aside from our identity. We are the idol of God, the one through whom his presence is going to be mediated in creation. But this, this image is not mediated through the, the one pharaoh and the one idol. It's, it, the image is mediated. The power of God in ruling in the earth is mediated through every man and every woman. And so that you imagine how undermining that is uh, in a, within a totalitarian context. And not only that, that God is so generous that he gives the image to humanity, and so they can actually, they actually pass that on now through male and female becoming one flesh, and when their children, well, I think it's Genesis 9, something like that, we're <laughs> off piece here, uh, that's where the image comes, that Adam and Eve pass on the image to their children, it comes through that whole context. So this is a completely different radical concept uh, right at the beginning, this presentation uh, of male and female. And so kingdom authority is right at the heart of that. So, so we see here that the, the authority to rule and to reign and to be in the image of God and to have a dominion and to steward is given to both male and female. So uh, that's a good start. So moving on, when we go into Genesis 2, Verses 19 to 25, um, we have the, uh, the, the you, you've got the sort of overview in Genesis 1 and, and then Genesis 2 it fills in the gaps. I've not got time to talk about all the different views or whether you've got two different stories or whether this is the classic Hebrew way of telling a story where you sell the overview first and then you fill in the gaps. You know, they both have some views 
to it. And obviously the person that compiled Genesis from the oral tradition, you know, who knows what was in their mind. But you, you see these two stories, these two renditions of the story flow alongside each other. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see that he would name them. And at this stage, Adam, man, is a generic term for the whole of humanity, not the name of... Adam became Adam after Eve was born, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So, so, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, but for Adam, no... No suitable helper was found, so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought to her and said, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Give ye, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And so... We kind of begin to enter the kind of the battlefield. Uh, you know, some have su suggested that, you know, only Adam was in the image of God, Eve isn't. You know, some, some theologians have gone that far over the years. I mean, we don't really need to talk about that. But but you, you then get this tension between, you know, those who, who have more of what you would call a, an egalitarian view of the relationships between men and women, that there's an equality, uh, and that's where the mutuality it meets in terms of equality or what's called a complementarian view, uh, which is basically, well, yeah, of course, they're equal, but but in a different way, which means the men have all the leadership. They're equal, but the men have all the leadership. and The women don't have any. So it's kind of they're equal apart from when they do anything, then they're not equal. Um, it, it's, it's a bit of a strange framework, you know, in, in reality. So. So some would say, well, you know, when we look at Genesis 2, we begin to see this uh, complementarian view. Uh, and, and the reason that men have authority over women is because Adam was formed first. Um, I think um, that really doesn't quite work because the, on that basis, Adam would be under the amoeba and the trees because they were in that story of formed first. That doesn't really quite work. Secondly, the whole idea of the rights of the firstborn you know, Adam is born, so it, it, within the Old Testament, within Hebrew thinking, you had the rights of the firstborn, you know, Jacob's multicolored coat, that was symbolized as authority. Um, but, you know, God seems to overturn that consistently. He overturned it with Abel over Cain, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brother, brothers, and David over his brothers. So the rights of the firstborn doesn't really seem to be a consistent framework to have there and then there's this idea that um obviously he was formed out the rib of, of adam um and and, and so you know I, I, there's actually some inferiority there like matthew henry who says not out the foot to be walked over uh or out of the head to rule over but out of the rib to be alongside and i, I kind of like that that's a, a kind of a good a good way of looking at it i feel and the word helper, also it's worth noting, is used uh, in 15 out of the 19 times that helper is used in the Old Testament. So Eve is Adam's helper. 15 out of the 19 times it's used of God. The Lord is my helper. So if you want to be pedantic, you could say that, you know, Eve was God to Adam. But I don't think we'd quite go that far. That would be pushing the hermeneutic. But it's never used of an inferior. 
person. It's only ever used of God in relation to humanity or uh, you know, others, human, equal human beings helping each other. So as Jewett says, so far as Genesis 2 is concerned, sexual hierarchy must be read into the text. It is not required by it. And that will help us when we go back to Ephesians and we talk about you know, husbands, uh, you know, wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives. Obviously, Paul is quoting straight out Genesis. He's, he's no dummy. He, he, you know, he, he knows what's in that text. So when we get to understand what, what, what he means a bit more, we need to bear this in mind. So, yep, Genesis 3. So, you know, some go to Genesis 3 and they look at it and say, well, you know, the woman's desire is for the husband and, and all this kind of stuff. And they look at Genesis 3 and say, yes, look, it's in the Bible. But I don't really think we want to be um, taking our ideals from the fall. <laughs> you know, in, re in reality, you know, Jesus in Matthew 19, he says it's not so at the beginning, Matthew 19, 4. So Jesus is going back to the original intention, not pre-Genesis 3, and the entrance of sin in the world and humanity, um, you know, declaring independence uh, in that kind of context. Pre that whole dynamic, when work became a curse and the animals started to rebel and, and there was that separation and pain in childbirth and all the suffering that came in, Jesus goes back to that. And so if we're going to look at, the, you know, the ideal relationships between men and women and, and context in the church, we, we you know, we, we look forward, but we also need to go back uh, to the beginning, not to Genesis 3. And, and there is also this concept where God's redemption, God's kingdom brings restoration of original intention. This whole thing of, you know, Paul's idea of us being new creations and being ambassadors and, and speaking out um, the redemptive purposes of God for humanity and part of that is the image of God which as I say in our context of our society we wouldn't have this high view of humanity if it wasn't for Christianity and the worldview that undergirds it which begins in Genesis and Paul in Galatians 3 26 to 29 which some scholars would say um, this is his ecclesiology it's ecclesiological formula uh, you know this where, where um he talks about our unity in Christ. Um, let's turn it up, we might as well. This Bible so long, I've taken it fishing with me a few times, it's a bit sticky. Uh, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, it's, the word son is nothing to do with gender, it's to do with, you know, firstborn sons. You know, everybody, male and female, everybody who's come into Christ has the full rights of the firstborn whether it's slave or free or women or male, female, whatever, we, we've all got the first rights of, uh, of, the, of the firstborn before God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have closed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And, and so is, um, it's um, Stephen, what's his surname? I'll remember his name later. Uh, in his so looking, he's basically saying that um, it's not that there's no longer any men or any women, and in that context, it's not that slaves no longer existed because they had no power to change the Roman Empire in that kind of framework. 
Uh, and obviously people are still born Jewish and born Gentile, but he's saying that in Christ, the unity of Christ and the oneness in the spirit demolishes all of the uh, the creditations of worth that society holds. So they were in a society where slaves were at the bottom and were women at the bottom and Jews were at the top. Maybe it's like you, but basically once you, once you uh, were justified by faith that you received the Holy Spirit, you came into a community where, where all of those, all of those sort of apportions of worth, they'd gone. It says a beautiful, loving. So you had slaves potentially who were leaders in the church, whose owners weren't leaders in the church. The whole thing got you know messed up, and you see that in the book in Philemon, where Paul says, you know, receive Onesimus back as a, as, not as a slave, but as a brother. Of course, you know, obviously you couldn't go on the street and campaign against slavery. Then the Romans would just crucify you upside down, or behead you, or, or do something. You know, it's like. It, it, what's his name in his book dominion says you know there was no concept you know if you just showed any kind of weakness uh, in in the roman empire you'd likely get raped beheaded or assaulted you know in our culture we see that someone's weak and we immediately want to welcome and but that's because of our judeo-christian worldview. those things were alien to the to the the roman mindset and so this kind of neither jew greek slave nor free male nor female dynamic was a complete and utter mystery to the, to the Romans, they, they they could not understand it, you know, and, you know, they called the Christians atheists because they only believed in one God rather than loads, and there's lots of, you know, really, you, you know, really interesting stuff where the Romans are just trying to figure out um, this, this radical new community of God that somehow brought, brought this equality uh, in, into place and into being. There's one uh, hilarious... Um, um, document which um, people use to because there's not really much in the New Testament that says you know what the churches actually did when they met you know you, 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 you know, there's not an order of service in, in there anyway you don't and and there's this famous document you there's this um, Roman governor called Pliny and he's writing uh, I think it's to tat the emperor Tatian and he's saying look I don't really know what to do with these Christians can I just check with you that I'm doing the right thing and he said, well, basically, what I do is I, you know, I interrogate them. And if they recant, I maybe let them off with a beating or whatever. If they don't recant, I'm killing them, you know. And, and you know, is that the right thing to do? Uh, and, you know, and he says, yes, absolutely, sure. And, 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 and then he, he basically says, from what I can work out, you know, they, they come together. Uh, they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God um they um they make the vow that they will not commit adultery that they will not steal that they will always put a bribe back they will you know and, and and then they leave their meeting and then they convene later and they have a, a meal together an innocent meal where there's no sin or whatever and he said so so when i looked at that i, I thought yes they're guilty um we, we you know we should kill them but just to check up i took a couple of their leaders who were slaves, deaconesses of women, and I tortured them uh, to, to, you know, and, and, and I was convinced by their response that they're telling the truth. And, and then he goes, I don't really know what to do because this contagion is spreading everywhere. You know, it's from the city to the villages, from the rich to the poor. Uh, you know, I, I really just don't know how to understand this whole kind of framework. So you, you have this, um, you know, where, where this idea at the beginning of male and female in the image of God 
you know, came into those early Christian communities and, and caused, you know, complete and utter um, confusion uh, it, to, the, to the Romans and to the Roman Empire. Okay, so we're going to pause a little bit there. So um, you can get into groups four or six or however many you usually do. And I've got three possible questions. We've only got 10 minutes, so you can't do all three. I suggest you pick one. Three great questions there. So get into a group four or six, choose one, and I'll give you sort of five. Okay, let's put it all back together, come back in. We won't take feedback, but we will do some uh, takeaways at the end. So uh, comments right at the very end. So uh, yeah, you lot at the back. Feel free to make your way back when you're ready. I'll, I'll carry on. So um, just moving on, um, women, women in the Old Testament. I think, as I've already said, uh, you know, in the context, you, you know, Israel finds themselves in the context of the wider pagan nations, and you, you, you're continually seeing this influence, and the context of the society was around. So there's no doubt that you're, particularly in the nations more widely, you know, there was a very strong patriarchy, male-dominated framework, uh, and you see that in the context of Israel, that the patriarchy was definitely the framework. Now, I think there's some qualifications from that, and there are some key differences, as we've already noted, in the Genesis narrative, in the way that the image of God is worked out with, with, with both men and women. And we see in the Old Testament, you know, women holding some of the highest roles possible. So we have Miriam, uh, a prophetess and leader. You've got Deborah, military and civil and religious leader, Judges 4. And you have Holder, a prophet and contemporary of Jeremiah, and five national male leaders seek out her advice. So it's not as often said, well, you know, God only used a woman when he couldn't find a man, as uh, David Paulson suggested. Uh, inappropriate, I would say. Um, but uh, the next slide... Um, I think the things we should note is that, firstly, um, we've got the next slide, that's all right, don't worry, yeah, that uh, as Carol Mayer notice, uh, observes in her book, Rediscovering Eve, which I would, again, if, if any of you are interested in history and cultural frameworks, it's a fantastic book. Uh, she basically points out that, uh, you know, Abraham, that whole framework is, is Iron Age. Uh, that, that's where what we're looking in terms of, you know, history. So you're looking at a, an agrarian society who are, uh, who are at subsistence levels. And the way those cultures operate is uh, men and women have to work together. You, you, you know, you, it's not a case of you know, our concept of patriarchy, if you like, comes after the Enlightenment with the Industrial Revolution when you've got a lot more um, money and there's a possibility of one of the partners sitting at home and doing very little. <laughs> well, but in an agrarian society, basically, it's all hands on deck because you've got food scarcity, you've got all of those dynamics. And so you've got the men out in the fields doing the harvesting and whatever, and they, they, they've got to have as many children as they possibly can. 
and keep as many of them as alive as they possibly can because basically the more children that you've got that can then take part in the work of the family, the more that you can plant, the more that you can harvest, the more you can develop. So you've got this, it's a survival partnership. So in that context, you're not unequal. And then also much of the industry and the technology was in the home. So the men would bring the grain in, but you know who is it that, that developed and operated the technology that turned all of that into food? Well, it was the women. Who would it, who was it that were responsible for the development and the operating of the technology that brought forth clothes and cloth and all of that kind of stuff, which is industry? So Mayer would say, well, actually, the, you've got this within these agrarian societies. You have much more of a partnership between men and women that, that, that yes, there are, there were very distinct roles because of childbearing and child rearing, but you've also, it's not the case that the women were, you know, the women obviously were, were taking the lead in areas of technology and production and all of those kind of areas. And so she would say, you know, when you look at Proverbs 31, woman, this, you know, this whole thing of the, the, you know, the woman who's not sort of um, evaluated in relationship to her husband, but she's bringing up all the children, the children call her blessed, she educates, she's at the city gate, she's doing business, doing all that. She would say, well, look, this isn't this idealized, mythical woman who doesn't exist. This was the very real down-to-earth, you know, ideal model for a woman in that context. That the, the, the society required that kind of framework. And she would also point out, that's why when you look in the story of Genesis, when it's talking about paradise, it's, it's seeds of every kind. It's, you know, it's all of this kind of, because it's an agrarian society where food scarcity and survival was a very real issue. So their idea of paradise is where there is that plenty, where the earth is yielding and cooperating. That, that was the idea of paradise. So I think what we see, although we see this, um, Men, there's an interesting debate around what, why was the priesthood mediated mainly by men. Some would say, well, that's because, you know, when you're looking at the context of Babylonian and Mesopotamian religion, that you had the power of the goddess, the, the, the feminine goddess, and so they were wanting to be separate away from that. They would say that that was one of the reasons um, there's all kinds of other stuff that you, you'll pick up in Maya. And also, if you're adventurous enough to do Davis's Flame of Love, he goes through the lot. Uh, but if you also have a discussion around the matriarchs, on to the next slide. Um, Richard Davison in Flame of Love, you know, he basically says, well, look, you know, everything that Abra Abraham had, Sarai had, you know, in covenant, you know. So Abraham became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah. And in fact, there are some women in the Old Testament that had covenants that were unique that men didn't get. And generally speaking, he goes through the narrative stories and how, how often the narrative stories of the Old Testament are, you know, not perhaps so favorable towards, you know, Abraham where he's pretending Sarah isn't his wife, you know, but that actually tell the story of the woman in quite a powerful way. So he kind of looks through that whole thing and he basically says, look, um, they were respectful to their husbands, yet intelligent, forceful, and directive. And uh, Maya, the matriarchs, graced the pages of Genesis with their strength and with their power. And so you look, um, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel display that despite the patriarchal society, which was widespread beyond Israel, uniquely Israel's women lived 
a functional gender balance. <laughs> That's in reality what was behind the scenes. There was this functional gender balance that was operating now. Lots more we could <laughs> say because we're, we're, we're doing some big high, high picture overview. So let's pop into the New Testament. Women in the life of Jesus, nothing um, particularly new here, I would imagine. Um, you know, you've, you've got Mary at the feet of Jesus uh, in the same way that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, that's the position of discipleship and, and authority, you know, even though um, some of the scribes, you know, said rather feed the law to dogs than to women. You know, Jesus was completely the opposite of that uh, in that framework. They were on his mission teams, uh, Luke 8, traveling companions. They funded him. Clearly, women that had substance and resources, um, and, and they were funding Jesus. And um, witnesses of the resurrection, um, you know, he's very curious the way, particularly Luke, but also others, they tell this story of the women being there first, witnesses of the resurrection, when in that context, a woman's testimony wouldn't stand up in court. And some scholars have said, well, look, Mary was the first apostle. She was sent by Jesus to proclaim uh, the resurrection. Uh, so that's a, 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 an interesting framework. So women in Paul, uh, I've excluded 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, 14 and 1 Timothy 2 because, you know, we could spend some time on those, but I guess you've had that before. If you get Lucy's book, you'll get it. But the first thing to say is that when you're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, uh, if you want really a summary of Paul's view, it will be verse uh, 11 and 12, which is in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. So if you want to understand Paul's view, that's what he's saying. He's, 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 he's at interdependence. That's his summary. Um, secondly, you know, a woman should be silent in church. Well, what does that mean? Well, the women were obviously all prophesying, so they obviously weren't being silent in every church meeting. So we've got something going on that requires um, some further explanation. But the, ge the general dimension is that women were not silent in church. Philip's daughters were prophets. Um, Phoebe was sent, uh, you know, the whole idea of women not teaching. Well, Paul sent Phoebe down with his... his um, you know, some would say that the peak of his theology, the book of Romans, was delivered to the Roman church by um, Phoebe, and, and she wouldn't have just read it, she would have taught it. Paul would have, you know, the, 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 it would have been scribed, uh, and Paul would have explained it to her, taught it to her, gave her the book, she would have read it to the church, and, and then would answer the questions. And so, so whatever was happening, women were teaching. Whatever 1 Timothy 2 was about, Paul sent Phoebe with the book of Romans to instruct the church. So we won't worry about those for now. Um, and so, which I think is, is also, uh, yeah, okay, let's go on. So women in Paul, um, really interesting. We've, we've already talked about Galatians 3, neither Jew, Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There's plenty of evidence in the earliest churches of women of all ranks eventually coming into the church. And, and that's what turned, in some of the martyrdoms, the early martyrdoms, there were lots of like martyrdoms. And, and at the beginning, it had no impact. But it was when you got like rich Greek 
women like Perpetua, you know, uh, at the peak of her life and authority, her and her slave who just had a child, the child was literally ripped from her, being martyred in, in the gladiatorial thing. It's when they started laying their lives down for the faith. And, and, and part of that was because, you know, even if you came from quite an influential family, you would be having children by the age of about 12. And you were generally, you know, it's quite a, very abusive in that Greek culture. And, and women thought, well, even quite rich and privileged women thought, well, when we came into the church, you've got this sense of equality. And you've got this sense of friendship. And, you, you know, you've not got this sense of, you know, Greek husbands wouldn't go out in public often with their wives. They'd go out with an escort. You've got all, all of that broken in the church. So the early churches became attractive, not just as slaves and the low, but also to quite high-ranking women. It's when And when they started to come into the church, because of this wonderful equality that was there, and when they were martyred in front of everybody, it messed, again, with the, the, the heads of the Roman authorities. You know, we, we just don't know what to do with this phenomena or, or that we're seeing breaking out. Uh, and you have Lydia, a businesswoman, who's a leader in Philippi, you've got Phoebe, we've already said, the teacher of the letter to Romans. You've got Priscilla and Aquila. This is an interesting one um, because uh, Andreas Kostenberger in, in his God, Marriage and Family, if you want to find a book that, that, that personifies everything I disagree with, that's the one. Uh, but it's a very well-written one. Uh, at that is he articulates the view very well. <laughs> he's wrong in my opinion, but you know, he's, he's, he's a quality scholar. Um, but he, at uh, the end, he, he, you know, cause he's very much, you know, man's head, woman submit, all of this. But he gets, he says, there is the delicate matter of Priscilla and Aquila, you know, <laughs> delicate matter. This is the thing he's about to say, this is the thing that really doesn't fit my theology and I'm struggling to get my head around. And he says, the fact that Priscilla is named first in, in a number of the references would indicate that she was the leader in that relationship. Now, we don't know why. We don't know whether she was saved first, whether she was a disciple, whether she came from a rich family or a background, a rich background. But it, 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 the delicate matter is that she was clearly seen as, the, you know, the, the leader in that context. But there's also a taste of mutuality because there are also a couple of references where his name is mentioned first. And, and as what Konstenberger says, where they are the only example of a real live married couple that were influential and high profiled in the early church that we have. And, and the only example we have is this interesting one where Priscilla or Prisca was, was probably the first among inkles or known to be the leader. Although, again, there's a couple of references where he's named first. So there's a nice little bit of mutuality also within in that mix. And I think that's really, really uh, important to bear in mind. Uh, we've got women patrons and church leaders, clearly. Uh, Chloe is one of those, the church in her house. There are other women, uh, rich women who got saved, rich Greek women got saved, came into the church. They were funding the church. Other patrons, Stephanus and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've got prophets and apostles. Uh, Junia, that's the one that winds everybody up as well. Acts chapter 16, 17. Junia, outstanding among the apostles. Um, some theologians have been trying to uh, perform a sex change on Junia for, for over the last 50 to 100 years, but you just can't do it in the Greek. There is absolutely no record of, of, uh, of uh, anybody called Junia ever being a male in any of the extra-biblical literature. Junia is always feminine. So then they try and say, well, 
you know, what she wasn't really wasn't really saying that she was an apostle, la la la. But you know, if you take that, you take that passage clearly as it says, you have a real live example uh, of a female apostle who's actually named. And and obviously, you know, in Paul's ecclesiology, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So it may be that Junia, they think that Andronicus could possibly have been Junia's husband. And, you know, they're kind of thinking, well, we don't really know who planted the church in Rome. We know it wasn't Paul, but, you know, this couple seemed to be, you know, a a good possibility. If they were outstanding among the apostles in Rome, maybe they were the ones who planted it. We don't really know, but it's well worth um, thinking over. So next one. One thing we will look at, because uh, we're going to look at the household codes, you know, husbands submit to the wives, all the, what, you know, wives, wives submit to the husbands, all this kind of dimension. This whole idea of headship, you know, so often, um, and that comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is the context is marriage. Not got time to go into it. So there's this whole idea um, that that the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that the father is the head of the son. So if you take an authoritative, unequal role of that, you step into an early church heresy called subordinationism, which is where uh, a a lot of those that take the complementarian view, they've actually stepped into, you know, the well, the dangers right into an early church heresy. Because if you say that the wife is unequal to the husband and subservient to the husband, you are saying the son is unequal to the father and subservient to the father. And so in a sense, you are deconstructing the Trinity, um, but by by default, and and I think you know we need to. That, that's something that we really need to look at. Whatever headship is, it is not inequality. Um, it can't be because we believe in you know, the most important thing about God. The first thing we say about God is God is one. The second thing we say: three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not distinct persons like Chloe and I are a distinct person. Um, the Greek word for person is slightly different to that, and we've not got time to go into the Trinity. But um, so the roles of the Trinity, I'll give you uh, the internal operations of the Trinity, a bit of systematics just in one line to kind of help us get our head around this. So, so within the Trinity, scholars call it the internal operations of the Trinity. Within God, there are these three persons and there are different roles and frameworks. So the Father is unbegotten and unsent. He sends the Son and the Spirit, but the Son is the only eternally begotten one sent from the Father. The Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, depending on whether you take the Roman view or the Eastern view. That's why the Orthodox Church fell out with the Roman Catholic Church, because um, the Romans uh, were a bit worried, so they said, well, look, the Spirit... Uh, they wanted to exalt the son so so they said okay the spirit sent from the father and the son but the the orthodox said well if you do that you're denigrating the spirit so there's big fallout on on whether the spirit was sent 
from the Father and Son or, you know, ju ju just from the Father. So let's say Father and Son, shall we, for now. So I'll start again. The Father is unbegotten and unsent. He sends the Son and the Spirit. The Son is the only eternally begotten one sent from the Father. The Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son and is eternally present and poured out. However, they are one in presence and activity. For example, the Father and the Spirit suffer in and through the Son on the cross. So all this stupid stuff from certain people, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, you've got the father punishing, only, you know, the, the, this distant judgmental father punishing the son on the cross and, you know, we're going we're to throw out penal substitution because of this brutal framework. Anybody that would even suggest uh, that's a possibility clearly doesn't quite understand the Trinity because both the father and the spirit suffer in and through the Son on the cross because they are one. Now, then we're getting into the complexities of the incarnation, which we've not got time to do here. But um, what we see in this whole idea of headship, again, that, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are beautifully one, working in love and relationship together, and that is the model for marriage. It's mutuality. It's, it, it's you know, the Son lays aside his majesty, never for a moment becoming any the less the one in whom all things hold together, but voluntarily lays aside the majesty in order to secure redemption. At the same time, the, the, the Spirit and the Father exalt the Son to the right hand, to the highest place. So there's this mutuality, this beautiful love of mutual submission to one another and mutual service of one another, and that's the model for relationships. Uh, not power and d d domination. And um, Paul loves messing um, with the Greco-Roman heads. <laughs> uh, and so uh, and we would miss it um, in, our, in our language, but it, it's a classic example in 1 Corinthians 7, wives and husbands. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. Absolutely in Greek culture. Absolutely. But then he goes on to say, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to his wife. <laughs> what? <laughs> so you've got all the way through, you've got this mutuality where Paul, as we see, is messing with the culture. He's, un he's, he's pointing it in a different direction. And we'll see why he's not at times he's a, a little late, a little bit subtle as we come into the household codes right now. So, right, I, I understand the churches were really the next, next, next. Uh, so, when we look at the household codes, um, we can see some context of where these churches were operating. Paul's speaking into his into his churches uh, throughout the Greco-Roman world, and. Uh, you know, theologians are calling these Christ communities. These are different shapes and, size, and sizes. And so what happened was you have these associations or societies in Corinth. Uh, they could be philosophical societies. Um, some of them were based around the synagogue. The whole society was breaking. They had funeral societies where people couldn't, uh, couldn't afford to, 
to bury their dead. It was a really big issue. So they'd form a society together and each society would meet around meals. You, you'd, you'd pay to be part of that society a certain fee um, and you would eat together around the table. So you, uh, and, uh, and basically, you know, it, it, you'd all pay for each other's funerals. You know, there were, there were philosophical societies. There were societies based around um, workplace. So one scholar would say, yeah, there's a good case to say that the church in Thessaloniki was born, born out of a leather workers cooperative. You know, in, in Rome, these churches would have been more tenement, but the, all the best archaeology shows that, that the Christians were living in like tenements. And so, so the house churches would have been quite small, quite small houses. Maybe, maybe they'd knock two together. There's signs of that. So there'd be 10 or 20 people. And then d downstairs, they'd have the work where all the artisans would work. And so, you know, you can see when Paul came into a place, he was an artisan, he was a quality craftsman. Every city he came to, he could get a bit of work because he didn't have money. There was no one paying for him. So he would go in and Priscilla Aquila gave him work. They would go in. And so in Rome, that's the kind of stuff you had. In other places, you, they could tell that the Christians met in these Greek sort of style homes that were a bit bigger. So if you had a rich person, that house church might be the rich couple, all their slaves, wives, children, relatives, the whole thing. That could be bigger. So you're, you're looking at these communities between 20 absolute tops at a, a hundred in, in this kind of dimension. And, um, and the interesting thing is some of these, uh, churches were in the houses of non-Christians. <laughs> so you've got churches, Caesar's household. Interesting. Bearing in mind Romans one, um, you, you've got a church. You, you've got a church in Stephanus's household, and clearly at the beginning he wasn't a Christian. Later on, he becomes a Christian and looks like a leader in the context of Corinth. So, so these churches are growing up. Um, some of them were growing up within pre-existent societies. So there's quite a lot of debate going on. You know, did they come into a leather worker society, and then did they? They, they, they take it over and then it became a church. And, and then some would say, well, when Paul's talking about the stench of death or the stench of life, he's talking about the smells of the leather workers in the, that, you know, so it's very, so very interesting stuff. <laughs> but, but clearly, so did they take over these societies or did they start their own societies? And I think most of the evidence is this is how society was meeting. This is how they were meeting. But obviously within the Greek society, you had a lot of hierarchy, rich at the top, at the bottom, you know, 1 Corinthians 11. You know, so it's a bit like the Jews on Sabbath, but not quite. And, and they, because the table was a big thing in the ancient world, who you had around your table, that, that's the issues that they had going on there by way of bringing in values. And, and I think there's, um, off piece, but a great point. I think there's a lot to be said. You remember the book of Acts is written after 1 Corinthians, quite some while afterwards, although it's telling the story that gave birth to 1 Corinthians. It's from the book of Acts we find out how the church in Corinth was, was planted. But Luke's writing that afterwards, and he's writing it for a Greek patron, Theophilus, who paid for him to write the book. I think someone said they reckon for Luke to write his book, the, the commission would have been about 30 grand, which in those days was a lot of money. And so there, Theophilus was the patron. He paid Luke to write the history. 
And a good job he did, really, because otherwise, if you went from the Gospels to the, the letters, you'd be thinking, what happened in between? <laughs> you know, because it's, it's Acts that, that, that sets it. But I think there's quite a lot of, of evidence. In fact, it's my thesis that Acts 2, 42 to 47, though they met house to house, all of that kind of stuff. Luke, yes, he's writing the history of the early church, and he's got it there for us so that we know how to be church, but he's also writing to the churches in Corinth because in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 onwards, you see that they were doing the opposite of that. You know, people weren't getting looked after. People were going hungry. There was all of those stuff. And, and Luke is saying, look, this is how it started in Jerusalem. You, you guys in these churches throughout the Greek and Roman world, sort yourselves out. This is the framework around which church should be built. And so... The household codes kind of emerge in this context. And so Paul's teaching, and if you want to sum Paul up, it's, it's 1 Corinthians 9, all things to all people in order to win some. So he's got churches in Caesar's household, in Stephanus's household, and who knows whoever else's household. These are non-Christians, powerful people, and there is a, a there is a Greek protocol as to how these societies meet and operate. So we are now building church within those contexts. So how do we subvert it, and how do we bring our values to bear in the context of this society? And that's what the household codes are all about. So so one Corinthians eleven verse sixteen it brings it it says we have no other practice in effect. This is the way we do it. This is the way we work it out. So let's go on to the next slide. And Paul also, sometimes he says, look, um, you, know, um, you know, not I, but the Lord. You know, in 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 12, he's given instructions to the church, and he basically says, well, in this, is, I, I didn't say this, the Lord said this. So Jesus said this, so this is really authoritative. Now, what I'm going to say to you now, this is me. The Lord didn't say this, but this is what I'm saying to you as to how we're going to outwork what Jesus said. So in the New Testament church, they're trying to work this whole thing round, which is, which is really, really important. And, um, and you kind of see this in 1 Corinthians, in Acts 15, where, you know, the Galatians problem, any of you have read the book of Galatians, you have this, there's two things there, there's two problems that they've got in Galatians. One is, should the Gentiles be circumcised to, to become truly, you know, Christian or truly inserted in the faith? The second, and the second, which Paul, and the second one, which tends to get forgotten, which Paul was really, what do we do around the table? Because everything we do is around the table. So if we say that Gentiles can't eat with Jews because of the food laws, because they're unclean, we don't have a church. Because my ecclesiology is neither Jew, Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, and it's everybody around the table. So in Acts 15, they're trying to sort out, I, I think Luke conflates the two issues. I think it's two separate issues, but I think he conflates it. Now in Acts, at the end, more or less they say, well, look, the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, so that's the equivalent of circumcision. So we're not insisting that they be circumcised anymore. But at the end of Acts 15, they still come out with quite a conservative view on the food laws. But then when you get to um, 1 Corinthians uh, a, a little bit later, you, you, it, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 31 and Romans 14, you'll see that in your notes. Um, you see something a little bit different from Acts 15. 
because <laughs> Paul is outworking it in, in the situation. You know, you've got this whole thing of, you know, meat sacrificed to idols and do you eat meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul say, look, the idol's got no power for as far as I can say. I'd happily eat it. But I'm not going to eat a meat sacrificed to idol if a pagan is there and then they look at me eating that meat and they think I'm worshipping the idol. I'm not going to do that because it's all about the witness to Christ. And, 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 and similarly, you know, in Rome, the, the weaker brother were those who, you know, within the church who felt they had to keep the food laws, you know, in that kind of context. But Paul's saying, look, you know, we, we, we're, we, we're about unity. We work this thing out. So the household codes are there, you know, in, stuff around food, stuff around marriage, whatever, to try and how do we outwork this thing in our culture where we've got Jews who think this and we've got Gentiles who think this. And, and you know, the whole Rome thing was, you know, basically the church was started by Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, others were there. You know, the church started persecution. All the Jews were thrown out apart from a few and then basically you have this massive revival amongst the Gentiles and then the persecution finishes and all the Jews come back and it's like, oh my word, what have they done to our church? You know, the Gentiles, they're all meeting together. They're all you know, eating with some of the Jews that are left. They're all eating meat that's, like, <laughs> you know, and so Paul is writing into Rome to try and bring, basically say to them, look, you're all in the same boat. So agree with each other. That's that's the whole message of the book of Romans in one line. You know, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, faith preceded everything in Abraham. You're all in the same boat, so get on with it and 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 work it out. And that's what the household codes are there to do. And so the household codes, you know, wives and husbands, husbands and wives, parents and children, children and parents, slaves, all of that kind of thing. So, so the big issue for them was slavery. That was a really big issue for them because you had slaves that came to Christ. You had some people who were freedmen, freed, who had less money than people. If you were a Caesar slave, you had quite a lot of money because you could own property. You could, but if you were a slave of a lesser person, you didn't have a lot. But there's some of the people that were freed within their own framework, they had less. So you've got this people that were slaves that had more money than people that were free. And then you're, they're all in the church together. You know, you had all the complexity around manumission and freedom and all of that. And Paul's saying, well, yes, yeah, definitely good to get your freedom and all of that. So they're having to work out how this works. Now, now we've got issues, haven't we, in our society <laughs> you know, we might have an ethic about male and female in the image of God and all of that framework, but what, uh, uh, but what are the issues that we might need a household code around? You know, say, say one option might be um, the drinking of alcohol, for instance. You know, so in the past, you know, salvationism or other things, early Methodism, their household code was teetotal. Now, now we all know that Jesus did not turn the water into grape juice. He, <laughs> he turned it into wine. Now, so, so what we can then do is we, we make it a gospel absolute, no alcohol. I would suggest that you, you can't do that biblically or otherwise, but what it really is is a household code. In that context, you've got such a high level of alcohol abuse and other things that we can't go there. So, so that's a household code, if you like. 
And, and, so, and so different churches really, different, it's a missiological framework. That's what these household codes are. So you see where we're going to head a little bit later. Um, how do we outwork that? You know, if you've got slaves or if you've got, you know, what are the issues? Um, so let's discuss. What do we think the issues where we might have to have a household code? Get into groups, 10 minutes, and you can discuss those. Okay, let's make our way back in. Sorry to break you short. Uh, you know, I think, um, so what we've got this situation where Paul is outworking the gospel uniquely in each culture on the basis of we're being all things to all people, which is exactly what we have to do in all things and all places. So our work, if you like, is to look at the theological issues behind, which is, you know, your image of God, male and female together, what are the core frameworks, the whole idea of the Trinity. Um, there are distinctives, there are differences, but there's basically mutuality and, and one. So at one level, equality making everybody equal, it kind of fits and doesn't fit, uh, you know, because there clearly is some, even within the whole framework of, you know, all the gifts of the Spirit uh, come from God, uh, and, and nobody can say Jesus is Lord except for by the Holy Spirit. But there's first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So there's an order within that whole kind of framework. But it would be fair to say if Paul was starting with a clean sheet of paper uh, or starting within our culture, he wouldn't have started with these household codes. It, it would be something different because these are, you know, like all of the New Testament letters are contextual. And so to just come in and just teach these household codes at face value without understanding what Paul is doing is why we've ended up with, uh, you know, authoritarianism and all kinds of unhealthy stuff being modeled, um, you know, in the context of, you know, marriage, all this kind of stuff, um, which, you know, is not where we, where we want to go. So we have to do some work to understand what is there. And so, the guiding principle, if you like, is mutual submission. Uh, in Ephesians 5.21, it's exactly, the, it, and it mirrors, uh, you know, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you've got, you've got the equality of Galatians 3. Uh, you've got submit to one another out of reverence for Christ here. You've got 1 Corinthians 12.13, Colossians 3.11, uh, one, you're where there is this kind of dimension of we, we submit to one another, we, we listen to each other, we fit together, sometimes in the context of gifts of the Spirit, sometimes in the context of different races, um, how you complement each other, how you break those barriers within society. And, um, you know, and then finally Paul's thing of, you know, women are not dependent of men and men aren't, uh, you know, independent of women. We are interdependent together. And so Paul's real approach, really, what he's doing is he's, he's running the line between pushing against the culture uh, and also keeping the church alive and online and not being completely destroyed because they're so against the culture. So you see that within Philemon. He doesn't come right out and condemn slavery. You know, that probably wouldn't work very well. 
You know, you, you, you know, there's no, you, you didn't protest <laughs> the Roman Empire, did, but but you know, basically, when you look at Philemon, he says, well, you know, receive him as a friend and a brother, not as a slave. Well, basically, you've just killed slavery, you know, because basically the church is just breaking all of those divides by the way it's behaving, and this is what Paul is doing, and and even you can, you, so you can see within this context of. You know, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which would fit very, very well, uh, you know, in the context of the Greco-Roman culture. Um, he's just doing some very, very naughty things all the way through. We've had the 1 Corinthians 7, 4 belonging to one another. But then you have this very curious uh, passage in, uh, in Ephesians 5.26 where husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And that in the Greek, that's literally doing the laundry. So he's basically saying Christ undertakes the household feminine wifely task of doing the washing and purifying us. So husbands and wives need, uh, husbands need to do their wives washing. That's more or less, you know, he's, he's kind of really turning the thing on his head, being very, very subtle uh, in, the, in the way that he's bringing that stuff in. And so you see this sense of Paul, you, you, it kind of like people are saying, it's kind of a soft patriarchy. It's like, how do we get there from here? We can't quite abolish slavery. We want to bring more equality. We're releasing women into all parts of leadership, including the apostle. Now, how do I work this out in Caesar's household? And so you have some very curious stuff where, and, and so it, it's always the same with Paul. You've got to understand, this is like a photograph of where the church is at then. You've got to see where Paul is pushing the church forward, but by way of creating you know, marriages and relationships between men and women that are interdependent and are reciprocal. And, um, and probably, so that, that would be my comment on how you do that. And I think for, for us as communities, the main message, there's a lot of message within, you know, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the way headship operates. There's a lot of messages around mutual submission. There's there's a lot of messages around, look, in uh, neither Jew, Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, it's not rubbing out the fact that there are men and that there are women, but but it's saying, look, about worth and about equality, there's difference of function. We're not rubbing away the differences between men and women, but what we are saying that in terms of worth and contribution and leadership, it all comes in the image. And, and so it's about that men and women coming together in mutuality. That's really the message that we, that, that's of the household codes. And you might in our, our society now say, that is a massive message that we've got because you, you have extremes on, on both sides of society. You know, what is it that, that we as a church have got to say about men and women in this context, which if we had time, it is a question that we would undertake. So here are some questions which we won't do now because we've gone over time. But I think these would be great things that you could have a conversation about your house church. You know, when headship is viewed from the lens of the Trinity, what values does that impart into the context of marriage? And, you know, what does, what does headship mean? And how does that, you know, does this class, does the view of headship proposed here impact male, female roles and cultural stereotypes within marriage? So, you know, what is it, you know, you some, you know, marriage preparation stuff, you know, 
the man's ahead, so he's got to organise the finances, which is a bit of a problem if the husband can't count, isn't it? And the wife's an accountant. I mean, how dumb is that? You know, but I'll give it the man's ahead, he's got to do it. You know, the woman's a strategist. She can think, you know, that the guys, you know, I was talking to a lady, said, you know, my, my husband's dyslexic, he can't count, he can't add up, and all he wants to do is do the garden and look after the house and do this, whatever. You know, I'm the, I'm the strategic one, whatever. And, and, and so, but then it, sometimes it's the other way around, or sometimes it's a bit of both. And, and so it's what, what does headship mean and how does that um, reflect different gifts and contributions and, and, and how, do we view, um, how do we view gender? You know, are there certain, you know, is, is the male quality, you know, initiative and aggression and strength and the female quality, sensitivity and gentleness? Uh, I don't know. I think sometimes I'm a little bit more intuitive than my wife, who could be incredibly rational. Now, on the other hand, she's got more empathy. What's that? She's got loads of empathy. She's got empathy for England. You know, so, so, but it's a lot of it's around personality and upbringing. Now, do we respect each other? Do we mutually submit to one another all the time? Do we learn from each other all the time? Are we doing this thing like a partnership all the time? Does the partnership look different um, at different seasons of life and pregnancy and this and that? Well, yes, it does. But it doesn't negate the fact that it's, mutuality and mutual submission with Christ as the head uh, that, that is key. And, and leadership and gifting operates differently. But how does that work? Uh, what message do poor household codes have to contemporary society with toxic masculinity on one side and feminist male hatred on the other side and goodness knows what else in the middle? Um, you know, how can mutual submission, interdependence and the recognition that it's only together that women and men reflect the image of God change things and I think that's a really interesting message that I think we, we that we can bring because it's it, you know the history is that the oppressed become the oppressors really quickly don't they it, it doesn't matter whether it's over racial issues or sexual issues or whatever you know those that would be oppressed when that would have been oppressed when they get the power they then become the oppressor and you could understand that it's payback time um, but is that the way of the gospel? Uh, I don't know. We maybe need to find a different way, I think. And, and, and that's where, as a church, being a countercultural community, and I remember when, when Margaret, my wife, set up a rape crisis centre, all the rape crisis centres in the country mainly were manned by survivors. And quite, quite understandably, they, they, a lot of them had real issues with men, and they would not counsel men. And so when Margaret started, they were one of the first, if not the first, rape crisis centre that would also counsel, uh, counsel men as well as women because they said, well, look, you know, 30% or 25% of those that have been abused are definitely men, and so we're not prepared to do that. And so it, she trained in, in one of these other radical feminist ones that she learned everything she did. They were absolutely fantastic, but we disagreed over that. Now, she couldn't even get a, join a national body because they, at that stage, all of the national bodies that, that accredited rape crisis centres would only accredit those that only counselled women. And it was only after Life Centre had been around for a while that another body emerged that would recognise counselling services that did both. But she felt rather than having, you know, one service over there and another service over there, 
that we need, just need to recognise that this was an issue for both sides, although obviously more weighted on one and the other because of the power dynamics in society. So that's how she was kind of thinking by way of mutuality and equality around that time. So last question, oh, just going to, in the light of this, what prophetic alternative and life-affirming models of male-female relationships could the church offer to contemporary society? And that is a, is a massive question, isn't it? Because we can, it's like with all these things, we could all point to what's wrong, um, you know, which we all do really well, don't we, everybody? Uh, but in the end, we got to, the, the big question is, well, how can we do this thing differently? You know, I know one of the churches I've written in that, 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 that I've worked with that's, you know, run by a woman, and she's still not getting paid as much as the male that, that led the church 10 years before. <laughs> you know I mean? Crackers. So it, it does, you know, well, we've got to deal with some of those things. Um, there's all kinds of stuff where we could do things a lot better as churches and model something that's really um, relevant. Good. Yeah, it's a bit hectic. Apologies, a lot of material. Now, any sort of just uh, feedback, sort of takeaways? You, you know, don't you, you don't have to bring any conclusions, but yeah. Oh, handouts. They, we'll make sure you get. Them. You can get them. Yeah. So they, it's quite exhaustive notes. Yeah. Good. Let's pray, shall we, just quickly. Lord, we thank you for uh, your, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for all that's really clear and, and, and that we love and we can just instantly engage with. And we also thank you for the, the hidden treasures uh, that there are. And I pray, Lord, that uh, some of the stuff we talked about this afternoon will be part of an ongoing conversation and exploration and learning for, the, for, for us here. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Right, well, thank you, Roger. Hopefully, like me, you managed to follow at least 50% of that. That was really excellent. It made me think, you know, when we have this rhythm of learning, it isn't just about learning. Actually, you could also look at it for a justice lens because we've all just basically had a degree level teaching there today. And some of us maybe don't have degrees or some of us didn't have, well, and certainly none of us had to pay for this blessing. So Roger, we thank you so much for, for coming and, and doing that for us. Now, I just want to just land one thing. Some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, why on earth did we spend so long talking about that? Surely we all already think that. Let me just say, this is clearly not a universal teaching in the global capital C church. Um, so this is why it was so important for us to, to home in on this and say this is something that we would hold to uh, and it's something that we really want to make sure, well, I don't think, we take it as read. You know, we, Charles is our team leader of our leadership team and, you know, we've got women in leadership. We have regularly have women speakers. We have, you know, everything like that. But it was, we felt it's important to, to talk about this at least once and have on record that this is something we really hold to. Charles is looking at me with worried eyes. No. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, but as well as all of these things that we're going to study, all of these ologies, as well as them being something that things that we want to study, they're also things that we also have to Im apply. And that's the reason we want to discuss these things so much is because we also have to apply them. We're trying to apply um, what it was like to be the early church today. We're trying to apply what 
you know, what Jesus was talking about. We're trying to apply what Paul was talking about, but to us now in Stamford Hope, in Corringham, in Vange, in Horndon, in Langdon, in Basildon, um, we're trying to do that today. And so that's why it's really valuable to have such great questions from Roger, to have his notes, to have time to discuss these things. And obviously we didn't have time to discuss all these things. So it's a great privilege to have Roger's notes. If you where there were things in here you still wanted to discuss, you know, grab someone, make time to, to go through it, to talk about some of these things. If there was something you didn't understand, if there was something you disagreed with, you know, make sure you, you bring that up with someone and you talk about that because it's important. It's not important personally. It's not important that we all think the same. In fact, I'd absolutely hate that if we all thought the same. But it's important that we've, we can talk about all these things so that we can apply them and so that we can be um, Jesus in, in our midst and so we can be um, the church to one another and to our community. So here we are. First ology, tick. <laughs> but it's only ticked once we start to apply it. So thank you, Roger. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you again next time.